This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. There is a story told of a young man who traveled far away from his ancestral home, and as he sought his fortune in a new land, he fell on the wrong side of a local band of villains. He was clearly outmatched by this new threat, but he found an unlikely ally and an old man who lived nearby, and this old man he found could teach him how to take his stand against the ruffians. So he asked the old man to help him prepare for his coming trial. The old man was strange, and his methods were unexpected. He instructed the young man in very exact terms how to sand the floor, paint the fence, and wax the car. Now, if you're not laughing, you probably weren't born in the 70s or 80s, because that is basically the plot of the movie The Karate Kid. Don't talk to me about the remake. Mr. Miyagi is always going to be Pat Morita. I don't care what you say. In the film, at the moment when this young man, Daniel, was ready to give up his training, his mentor shows him that these seemingly insignificant chores were actually teaching him how to respond when under threat. At the moment of attack, muscle memory kicks in, and he is able then to make his stand. It's a great scene, by the way. Daniel's about to quit, and all of a sudden his teacher starts attacking him, and he starts realizing these motions were actually defensive to help him teach him how to defend himself. Two weeks ago, uh, when we were together uh, and, uh, last, I, uh, we, were t- we were looking at how to build with hope in the coming year. This week, I want to turn your attention to what may seem to be the flip side of that, but really it dovetails with the idea of hope. What do we do when the storm comes? How do we handle the hardship that surprises us in the midst of life? How do we respond to trials of various kinds? Our text this morning is pretty short, just four verses, but I want to spend some time chewing on these verses, which you may have read over and over many times before. The challenge and encouragement I want to impress upon you this morning is this. Whenever you are met with trials, stand firm and do not lose heart because God is at work. Whenever you are met with trials, stand firm and do not lose heart because God is at work. If you're taking notes, the outline is pretty simple. After the introduction of verse 1, we'll look at the gift of trials, the gain of trials, and the goal of trials. Alliteration is what we do. So let's start by looking at this author's, uh, author's introduction and get a sense of who is talking to us here. James 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes and the dispersion, greetings. Now we see the standard introduction for a first century letter with the author's name and identification followed by the person or group he's writing to. So who is this James? Well, there are three notable Jameses in the New Testament, four technically if you count Judas Iscariot's father, we don't, but three notable Jameses in the New Testament. First, you have James, the son of Alphaeus, who was one of the original 12 disciples, but is not recognized by anyone in the early church as being the author of, of this book or any other book, though a few later scholars like Matthew Henry think it's him for some reason. I'm not sure why. But James, the son of Alphaeus, is least likely. Then you have James, the son of Zebedee, the brother of John, one of the sons of thunder, one of the, the core three of Jesus' disciples. But he is actually martyred relatively early in the life of the church. We see that mentioned in Acts 12, verse 1. 
So it's highly unlikely, based on manuscript evidence, that he was the one who wrote this book. So that leaves us with one other James. James, the half-brother of Jesus, the son of Mary and Joseph. This James is one of the brothers who tried to pull Jesus away from ministering to the crowds during his earthly ministry, and even mocked his reputation as, as a possible Messiah in John chapter 7. James wasn't even present at Jesus' death, according to the Gospels. He wasn't mentioned. Yet, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7, that after the, resur after the resurrected Jesus appeared to Peter and to the 12 and to a group of 500 who were there together, he also appeared specifically to James. This James, the younger brother, the non-believer, he finally believed. He was there in Acts 1. From this point forward, he's part of the church. He's there in Acts 1, praying with the other believers. He is uh, not only active in the early church, but he becomes one of the leaders and pastors of the church in Jerusalem. It was this same James who helped guide the decision of the Jerusalem council uh, regarding how to welcome Gentile believers. James would eventually be martyred in AD 62 for his profession that his older brother Jesus was, in fact, the Son of God. Yet James, the half-brother of our Lord, one of the pastors of the Mother Church in Jerusalem, begins this letter not by declaring his credentials, but by pointing to his master. He calls himself a servant, a slave of God and of the Lord, his Lord, Jesus, the Messiah. He then sends his greetings to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Now, we know from the context of this letter that he's writing to professing believers in Jesus. He isn't trying to make an argument that Jesus is Lord. He calls him Lord and Messiah in a way that suggests that this is understood or assumed by his readers. So he's writing to Christians. But the way he formulates some of his arguments and some of the, the, the wordings and the terms that he uses suggests that he's writing primarily to Jewish believers. <clears throat> My voice cracked there, sorry. <clears throat> Jewish believers. It's very likely that these Jewish followers of Jesus were driven away from Jerusalem and out into the surrounding countryside and surrounding nations because of the persecution of Herod Agrippa. We see that, uh, that begins in around AD 44, and we see that there in Acts 12 with the uh, martyring of James, the son of Zebedee, and then the imprisonment of Peter, a near martyrdom of Peter then. So Herod is persecuting Christians, and Christians are dispersing out of Jerusalem, out of Judea, into the wider world. And so James is uh, writing to them generally. He doesn't greet anyone specifically by name in this letter like Paul sometimes does. It seems more to be a general pastoral message or exhortation to these far-flung believers. This word dispersion, sometimes rendered as diaspora, can also be translated as scattering, like a sower tossing out seeds into the ground. Much the same way the gospel message itself would start to be scattered and take root throughout the Mediterranean world. So don't miss the reality of his audience, though, as we read this. For the most part, they were not dispersed or scattered by choice. These are believers in Jesus who had to pick up and leave because of the trial they were facing, the persecution that had heated up. The future was far from certain. And to these, James gives the fir this first exhortation of many throughout the book, and he tells them to receive hardship as a gift. And that's our, main first, uh, our first main point, the gift of trials. Let's read verse 2. James chapter 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. 
Now, this immediately goes against our expectations, doesn't it? You would assume James would say, count it all joy when you avoid trials or when you finally get through trials. But James actually says, count it all joy when you meet trials. And we should think carefully about each word in this phrase. The word count here points to how we reckon or consider something. It's not necessarily that we should feel joy or can't always feel joy in all circumstances, but that we count it as joy. We reckon it or consider it as joy. We're not in naive or insensible to the pain of trial. We're not told to always feel joy when trouble comes. What James is exhorting here is that we should think how we should think about and consider the challenges and hardships and suffering of life. Is it bad luck? Poor karma? Pointless suffering? No. Trials and challenges are an opportunity for finding joy. And not just mere joy. The word all there is an intensifier. We are told to count it a great joy when we meet trials. How can we think this way? How are hardships and suffering any source of joy? Well, if you see this world as being all there is, a purely material existence marked by a series of undirected, haphazard events and cycles with no clear beginning or end and no ultimate goal, then yes, trials and suffering seem pointless. What redemption is there for injustice or pain? What lasting benefit from trial? And as you hear me this morning, if you don't believe that there's more to the story, then this exhortation to joy seems irrational or idiotic. Because if there's nothing beyond this world, that's exactly what it is. But notice who James is speaking to. My brothers. Those who are called his brothers know and trust the Lord. So they and we believe the scriptures that repeatedly proclaim that there is more to the story, and that God is the one who sovereignly directs all the affairs of men. First Samuel 2, 6-8 says, The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts up the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. Psalm 115 verse 4 says, Our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. Proverbs 16.33, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Literally, every dice roll is directed by God's hand. Isaiah 45 verse 7, The Lord says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord, Yahweh, who does all these things. The people of God have these great promises that God is in control. We do not live in a random and unfeeling universe. God is at work. And because God is at work, we can rejoice in him no matter what's going on around us. Even in the worst circumstances, we can say with Joseph in Genesis 50 verse 20, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. In all circumstances, God's purposes will prevail. And, and this isn't in my notes, but I, I feel like it's a good place to say it here. If you don't believe that, then honestly ask yourself, what hope are you holding on to? Hear those sirens? What hope is there 
if there is not a God in heaven. That's the best we can hope for. So my encouragement to you this morning, if you're here, if you're a visitor, if you're watching online or whatever, and, and you don't know Jesus, you don't believe this, you're not quite sure about this, let me, let me assure you, there is hope to be had. There is purpose. There is joy. Most importantly, there is forgiveness for the sin that you have committed against a holy God. There is Mercy available to you in the person of Jesus Christ who died for your sin in your place and was raised again. Repent and believe on him. Turn from your sin. Trust in him and find salvation. And then you will see, maybe not even in this life, but ultimately on the last day, you will see that God had his hand all through your life. Nothing is wasted. All right, I'm going to get back on my notes. Um, Two brief points of consideration before we proceed to the next verse. First, the Greek word in the original text for trial is sometimes rendered as temptation, depending on the context in which it's used. In fact, you may have temptation in your copy of the scriptures if you're using another translation like a King James. Well, that's not necessarily wrong. We should be careful with that kind of rendering of the word and what it implies. Because about 10 verses later, James writes, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. The fact is, when we face trials of various kinds, there is often an opportunity for temptation there, but only if we fail the test and do not respond in faith. In those cases, even though God is ordaining the trial to occur, it's our own desires that are tempting us. Sinful desires for comfort or attention or pride or revenge. In verse 2, we are instru- as we are instructed to count our trials as opportunities for joy, we must not assume that the test is God tempting us to respond sinfully because that's not what he does. Secondly, don't miss the fact that James doesn't just say only certain types of trials are reasons for joy. We don't need to hyper-spiritualize this by saying that he's only talking about persecution or great sacrifices related to ministry or evangelism. Trials of various kinds means exactly that. There is no minimum size restriction for trials to be part of this conversation. The trials James is referencing here could be as great as national calamity or family tragedy or as tiny as the arthritis in your knee or being cut off in traffic. Not all pain and difficulty is equal by any means, but all pain and all difficulty can be useful, can be put to God's purposes. So what purpose, what gain can we see from trials? Well, that's in the next verse. The gain, the gain of trials. Verse 3. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. James says we know the testing of our faith produces steadfastness, but do you? Do you know that? Don't rush past the question, friend. Do you know that God can use these tests for your good. Do you believe it? Because when we know that God is faithful, that he will never leave us or forsake us, even in the midst of a long and heavy period of hardship, this can give us peace. 
when we know that God is in control of all things, we can also believe what Paul would write in Romans 8, just a few years after James penned this letter, when he said, we know that for those who love God, all things, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This verse isn't some sort of rhetorical, spiritual band-aid that we throw on top of uncomfortable situations. It is a life preserver that we cling to in the midst of the storm of suffering. God is strong. God is good. God is faithful. So whatever trials or hardships you meet along life's weary path, in faith you can receive them as being sovereignly ordained by a father who will redeem them for his purposes. That doesn't mean it's easy. doesn't mean you always understand it or know what the reason is. Sometimes the hardship and heartache we suffer is in the form of unspeakable evil at the hands of sinful men. But even in those moments of wretched injustice and evil, we can, by faith, follow the bloodied footsteps of our Savior and entrust ourselves to the only one who judges justly because we know that vengeance is his and that he will undoubtedly, fully, and righteously repay. We know, we have full confidence then, that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. When we face hardships or trials, it is our faith that's tested. Faith in these precious promises. Faith in God's righteous character. Spurgeon writes that this shouldn't surprise us. Satan rages at faith because he sees in it his own defeat and the victory of grace. In the moment of trial, our faith is put into the oven of adversity as gold that is heated hotter and hotter until the impurities rise to the surface. As we feel the heat being turned up, what we truly believe starts to come out. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 15, 18, that what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. Sometimes in our moments of unfortunate honesty, we are tempted to say, wait, I didn't mean that. That's not me. Have you said that? It's okay. You can admit it. Times when you've you've popped off like, well, no, no, that's not me. Point of fact, that really is us, at least in that moment. The testing of our faith gives us a glimpse of what's really going on deep down in our hearts. And when it reveals sin bubbling up to the surface, that itself is a mercy of God, because then we can recognize and confess those sins, those hidden attitudes and actions, and find mercy and cleansing through the work of the Holy Spirit, and, and, and a, that will pave the way for our growth and holiness. On the other hand, when we are tested and proven genuine by suffering, this brings glory and honor and praise to Jesus, who is at work in us. Peter writes this in 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, though though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Just as weight training leads to greater strength through temporary adversity, and pressure testing ensures that a product or device won't fail at the worst possible time, over time, the testing of our faith produces steadfastness, which is perseverance or patient endurance. Steadfastness is more than simply holding on stubbornly during hard times with white knuckles and a grim grim expression. 
Steadfastness isn't stoicism. The ancient Greek philosophy that seeks virtue through wisdom and reason and endures hardship without complaint. A worldview that seems to be finding new life among certain segments of the online world these days, I've found. Matthew Henry, in commenting on our text, points to the fact that while the Stoic simply remains calm under trial, the Christian faith goes farther by calling us to rejoice in the face of it. Stoic apathy and Christian patience are very different. We don't become insensible to affliction, but triumphant in and through it. You may or may not be familiar with the name Jocko Willink. Jocko is a retired Navy SEAL who started a professional coaching business as well as being a successful author and podcaster. This man is intense, like intense, intense. If you haven't seen his picture, he looks like he's been carved out of granite. And he has a voice and enunciation to match. It's how he sounds. And even though his material comes from a secular worldview, I often find it to be thoughtful and and motivating. One of his most famous uh, speeches or clips is about the word good. Whenever he's faced with an unexpected problem or challenge, he always replies, good. The way he says it, when things are going bad, I have to do the voice. When things are going bad, that's all, there's always good that comes from it. Some way to challenge yourself or make yourself better. Except he's intense. And honestly, that's not bad advice, necessarily. But it's born out of a stoic mindset. Christianity actually has something stronger to say. When hardships arise... Situations or circumstances that seem to have no possible benefit or outcome, we don't have to grit our teeth and just say, good. We can count it all joy and say in hope, for my good. If you're seeking to be a good steward but are in a season where you're just barely covering your bills, for my good. You've got a chronic illness that you're not sure that will ever get better for my good. You've been mistreated, slandered, betrayed, for my good. Maybe, God forbid, you have been violated or abused, hurt worse than you can say. Yet through the tears and the pain, you can say in faith, somehow, some way, this will be redeemed for my good and for God's glory. Steadfastness enables us to face each challenge with joyful hope that God is at work for our good and he will carry us through it. So as we grow in steadfastness through the testing of our faith, it produces something else in us. Let's take a look at the goal of trials now in verse 4. James 1 verse 4. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James encourages us to let steadfastness have its full effect. That means don't try to short-circuit the process or bail out too early by giving in to your passions or sinful responses. Instead, we should seek to submit to what the Spirit is doing in us. Even if it feels like a never-ending procession of hardships that have arisen one after the other after the other, hold on 
in faith. Trust that the Spirit is working in you. And don't give up hope. When steadfastness is allowed to complete its work in our lives, when we walk in step with the Spirit and submit to His hand, the result is spiritual maturity. That's what James means by perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That word perfect isn't talking about sinless perfection. We could see later in chapter 3, verse 2, that he says, we all stumble in many ways. And, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man able to bridle his own body. The word perfect here isn't pointing to sinlessness. It's pointing to complete and full maturity. The word translated as complete is a bit closer meaning to the word whole or sound or solid. The picture here of, is the solidness and consistency of a fully matured and competent adult. And these terms also have a bit of an eschatological implication as well. When we, when we are in our final glorified state, we will have these qualities in full. Until then, we are gradually made more whole and complete, but not quite fully. And the phrase lacking in nothing serves to emphasize this picture of wholeness. As, as, fully mature, as we fully mature as believers, we will be then fully equipped to face hardship in faith. That's why we are encouraged to pursue spiritual maturity. In his second epistle, Peter writes this in chapter 1, starting in verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You feel ineffective or unfruitful in your walk. Peter says, go back to the basics. Walk this way. Faith, knowledge, self-control, virtue, steadfastness, trusting in the Lord, obeying the Lord, and you will produce fruit. Steadfastness is a necessary quality of spiritual maturity. Though it's a virtue, we sometimes undervalue, much to our own uh, detriment. Spiritually immature tend to fight against steadfastness, completing its work in their lives by giving into the temptations of worry or anger or grumbling, complaining. J. Vernon McGee once uh, joked to the frustration of his congregation that there may be more spiritual babies in his pews than physical ones in his nursery. That was him. That wasn't me. I wasn't saying that. I'm just, I'm just giving you the quote. Sadly, this can be the case. So let me encourage you, especially those of you who've been following Jesus for a while, to examine yourself and see if your reactions to trials and challenges may demonstrate a need to grow in this area of steadfastness. On the other hand, as we grow in steadfastness and spiritual maturity, then our responses to disappointment and hardship are sweetened as a result. Spurgeon writes this. He says, when, when blessed of God, our trials ripen us. 
As sunlight ripens and brings out the mellowness and sweetness of fruit, a certain amount of trouble appears to be necessary to create a sugar of graciousness in believers so that they may contain the rich, ripe juice of a gracious character. That's a different way to think about trials, isn't it? The trials, the hardships, the daily challenges and the frustrations, they ripen us. They make us fruitful. And then by God's grace, they end up making us sweeter as people because we're relying on him. We're not becoming embittered and sour. James encourages and exhorts his readers that when they meet trials in their lives, they should respond by recognizing God's hand at work and rejoice that they are being refined and matured through difficulty. As they submit to the Holy Spirit's work in their lives, they grow in steadfastness and become spiritually mature believers whose faith and hope gives glory and honor to Jesus their Lord. Which all sounds great until the dinner is burnt and the kids are yelling and your work project deadline is suddenly moved up. So what happens when this eternal truth slams head on into our daily lives. How should we respond to trials? Because if you're not facing a particular trial right now in this moment, you're probably about to meet a new one soon. It's the nature of life. Some of us in this room may have to deal with hardship in the next 48 hours or so in, in the form of busted pipes or power failures. So I want to close this morning by offering five very practical strategies for responding to trials in faith, okay? Real simple. If you want, you can write them down. You don't have to. But five ways, five maybe steps. I'm not saying this is the way, but it's just, I think this is helpful, okay? One, when you face trials, pray immediately. First response, first thing. As soon as you realize what's happening and that you're facing a challenge or hardship, stop and pray. Even if it's a quick prayer under your breath, like, like Nehemiah, you can take a moment, ask God for help in the moment. I can't tell you how, how often over the last year, as I began fretting about this or that challenge we were facing as a couple, either Heidi or I would grab the hand of the other and we'd start praying together just real quick in that moment. Throughout the Psalms, we are reminded to call out to God in times of trouble. Paul writes in Philippians 4, 4 through 7, Rejoice in the Lord always. I, again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be, great, do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Don't miss that last verse. When we bring our requests to God, the peace of God guards what? Our hearts and our minds, our emotions and our thoughts. If your emotions and thoughts are guarded by God's peace, could you start to count trials as a joyful opportunity to see God at work? Probably could. So as soon as you realize you are facing a new trouble, pray. Secondly, remember what's true. This is where scripture reading and especially scripture memorization become a powerful tool for our growth in holiness. When we're caught off guard by suffering or sudden trials, 
the word of God becomes our compass, pointing us back to true north. Plus, when you've hidden God's word in your heart, the Holy Spirit can use those verses to, to can bring them to mind in the moment of need to remind you of what's true, not your feelings or your circumstances, but the unchanging word of God. So after you pray, go to God's word, reorient yourself with truth, and then turn to face your trial. Number three, sing defiantly. Now, this one may be a little bit unexpected, but I would point you back to Matt's sermon last week. The best songs of the faith are filled with the truths of the faith. When we can not only read or recall, but also sing these truths, it strengthens not only our minds, but our hearts. These songs become our battle anthems. So I would encourage you, when times are hard and trials rage, sing. Sing like men and women who have been ransomed from darkness, rescued and redeemed, adopted as sons and daughters, and loved by a sovereign God who works all things for your good. Sing. Sing the songs of the faith to remind you what's true. Teach them to your children. Write them on the doorways of your house. Sing. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, you have taught me to say, it is well with my soul. Though I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. Though the tempter would prevail, Christ will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. Though my love is often cold, he will hold me fast. And when you have nothing else to say, then bust out the doxology and sing to your triune God from whom all blessings flow. Sing brothers and sisters, in defiance of trials, in defiance of hardship, and in the face of the devil who would have you fear, sing. Sing in hope. Sing in joy. Sing. And then share your burdens. Number four, share your burdens. Galatians 6, you tells us to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. There are dozens of one another commands in the New Testament like this one. The implication is clear. We are meant to care for each other. So when you're facing a trial, take the opportunity to reach out to a brother or sister in Christ and ask for prayer, for encouragement, for accountability, even wise counsel. I have a handful of men, both my brother elders as well as a few others, who I will text, sometimes a little bit too much if you ask them, uh, when I am struggling or need prayer or when I'm facing a challenge and need encouragement to remain steadfast. Having these brothers in the fight with me is a blessing I've learned to appreciate more and more over the years. So if you have friends like this who are believers, reach out to them and ask for prayer, ask for encouragement in times of, of testing and trial. You are not a burden to them. You are giving them the opportunity to honor the Lord by helping you stand firm. So we pray, we remind ourselves what's true, we sing defiantly, we ask for help and support, 
and then we take action and hope. We touched on this briefly during the sermon two weeks ago. Once you've submitted yourself to the Lord, reorienting your mind and heart with truth and reaching out for support, you should do whatever the Lord has put in your hand to do. Depending on the situation you're facing, there may or may not be something you can do about, uh, something you can do to change your circumstances or the situation you're facing. I mean, if you can do that, then proceed in faith. But on the other hand, if the trial you're facing is truly outside of your control, then you can still trust the sovereignty of God and do whatever it is the Lord has put before you to take care of. In all circumstances, rely on him to guide your steps and ultimately work all things for your good. I would encourage you to begin training yourself with these tools. And don't be afraid to start small. You know, like, like Daniel and the Karate Kid, you start by painting the fence and waxing the car. So for example, you're going to work and there's a car accident that locks you in a traffic backup, bless you, and you're going to be late to a meeting. Rather than stressing out, fretting, raging at the drivers around you, maybe that's just me, that's fine. What should you do? First, pray. Not just for yourself, but maybe for the person in the wrecked car ahead of you. Remember what's true. The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. God is in control. Sing something true about God's power, or grace, or provision. Text your spouse or a brother or sister here just to ask for prayer in that moment. And then with a calmer heart, do what you can where you're at. I mean, it may seem silly at first to do all this. If you're doing something small, I'm cut off in traffic, I banged my knee, whatever. But we can train ourselves with the small trials to count it all joy that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. And as we do that more and more, steadfastness will complete its work in us. Jesus promised us that in this world we, would we will have trouble. Paul tells us that all who seek to live godly lives will be persecuted. Peter warns that we should not be surprised when we face opposition for our gospel testimony as if something strange is happening to us. Just being alive in a world corrupted by sin means we can face hardship or illness or grief or trial at any moment. But through it all, we look to the Lord for our confidence. And we can count all these things as opportunities to rejoice. Why? Because God is for us. And if God is for us, who could be against us? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that we know and can be confident and certain that you are in control of all things. There's no detail of our lives no single moment of our day that you have not directed and will use to accomplish your purposes in us and in the world. Lord, lock us in on that truth. Ground us so deeply in that, in that truth. Give us faith built on the rock of your sovereignty and goodness so that we can stand firm in faith so that we can rejoice in trial and so that we as believers can grow in steadfastness and maturity to your glory and to your honor. I pray for my friends here, my brothers and sisters who are in the battle, that you will strengthen them, that you will remind them of what's true, that you will fill their hearts with hope, that they will sing this next song with joy, 
that you will bring encouragers around them to help them walk and that they will move forward in faith knowing that you will hold them fast. Lord, for anyone here who is not in this family, who is not born again, I pray that they will see in this text a glimmer of what you do as a loving, sovereign God. And they will recognize they want to be at peace with you and not at war with you. I pray for all here who have not been born again, that you will grab hold of their hearts. You will convict them of sin. You will see, help them see that they have sinned against the God who made them and who is good and who is righteous and holy, and that they will repent and turn. They will confess that sin before you plead for your mercy and put their trust in Jesus' sacrifice. You are a merciful and holy God. We praise your name. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.